I think sometimes when we talk about diversity, it's not just the obvious. It's also about individuals that come from very different backgrounds, that think differently. And for me, I love building teams with individuals that think differently. B2B has the potential to be electrifying. But the industry is paralysed by a culture of conservatism, scared stiff in a straitjacket of rational ideas. It's time for change. It's time to make B2B marketing visceral. Join us as we uncover and explore the truth with leading B2B marketers. This is B2B Marketing, the provocative truth. Welcome to B2B Marketing, the provocative truth. I am Richard. And I'm Benedict. Today, we have the absolute pleasure of introducing Shalou Bihar Sheehan uh, here with us today. Um, one of the nicest uh, marketers that I've ever had the pleasure of speaking with. Shalou, would you like to introduce yourself to the audience? Absolutely, and thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here uh, as well. So Shalou Bihar Sheehan, I've been in marketing for over 25 years um, marketing during that period has changed drastically, been seen through many changes. Um, I'm award-winning. I put that down to mainly being very sales-centric in my approach, but also focused on uh, really creating exceptional experiences for whichever target audience um, I'm playing to. My background, I am predominantly um, a marketer that's played within the high-tech space. Um, it's very fast-paced. And um, But I have dabbled in B2C as well as the MOD, central government uh, as well. And I would say that um, with the type of um, marketing that uh, I've been used to executing, it has been ranging from very large organizations like the Cisco Lenovo's of this world to um, playing with a complete startup um, that uh, really had no uh, brand presence. So again, as a marketeer, having to pivot um, across being in a very established environment to being in a startup, you're really utilizing your skills and your knowledge and your know-how of really how to sort of like create relevance and resonance. Um, and really driven by, you know, continuous need to um, continuously uh, learn um, and to really seek to understand and also give back. So I'm also involved in doing a lot of refugee mentoring. Oh, OK. Fantastic. And Benny, why are we here? Excellent. Well, I'm very, very optimistic today. It's going to be a really fascinating change of pace for us in terms of what we're usually sort of talking about in the podcast. Um, so I'm really interested to see how this conversation develops. But as always... Let's start with a provocative truth and see where you sit, sit against this. Um, I think that it's, a, it's an observation which I don't think I exclusively hold that many marketers um, nowadays, because of the sort of the myriad sort of data streams that they're having to sort of work with, because of the different stakeholders they've got within their, their business and, you know, getting up to grips of all the latest trends, the latest technologies, they often actually lack the composure to think about what's important. And, you know, what's important being, you know, following your strategy, understanding your customer. So the provocative truth, I suppose, is that marketers in the moment are lacking that sort of reflection and composure that's required to do really, really good marketing. Is that a provocative truth that you agree with or would you reject that uh, assertion? I would say um, I'd reply by, by saying this, um, that um, if we can't be present for ourselves, mm -hmm. it's going to be very difficult to be present for others. And as a marketeer, you're constantly having to be present for others because you're having to think about driving, um, you know, con consistent customer experiences, you know, through every touch point. And if you look at the fact that we live in, you know, a, a time where there's just so much dig digital distraction, 
you know, you have to really be able to sort of like seek clarity through all that noise. So this is where I would say that the mindfulness part of how you show up as an individual is critical because it will seep through what you end up producing. And so, so when we talk about sort of getting that presence of mind and getting that, that clarity with all of that noise and distraction, which I think you've just described there, how would you sort of either conceptualize or describe what that looks like in terms of getting that, that presence of mind? So two things. Um, it is focusing on building relationships and moving away from transactions. And when you're mindful in your approach, you're having to think back, you're having to step back from what is happening now and just look at trying to gain perspective. And so for me, it is, it is, and when you've got perspective, you then start looking at building those relationships rather than looking at something being a transactional uh, exchange. So, I mean, you've used the term, and I, I was anticipating this, so it wasn't not a huge surprise, but so you're using the term mindfulness within the context of, of marketing. Is that something that you are sort of, in your mind, I suppose, developing a meaning for, or is that actually something which has come to sort of be something understood within within the industry at the moment? And as part of that, I'd be really interested in terms of to hear what, what is that working definition of mindfulness within, within the context of marketing? So there's a lot of terminology that exists today, ABM, you know, neuromarketing, mindful marketing, that actually has been around for years. Mm -hmm. It just happens to sort of like suddenly be something that we are choosing to, to sort of like wrap a conversation around. Um, and for me, mindfulness has to be something that is a natural state from within. Mm -hmm. So I started to meditate because there's a connection here between meditation and, and, and mindfulness. Um, so I, I, I went to boarding school at the age of three, um, a place called Shimla, which is at the foothills of the Himalayas. And as part of our daily ritual, um, we were taught to, to meditate. We were actually also taught to fast one day a week. Um, and I'm horrified now because I have children. And I just think, gosh, at the age of three, four, five, I just don't think I could ever give them uh, 24 hours of not eating. But actually, there are some really interesting benefits that come out from fasting. But and, you know, and I apply that to the world of work as well, because it does give you that additional clarity. Um, but also when you are meditating, you are having to sort of like really be in a in a space where you have to shut all the noise out. And if you think about the way that we work today as marketeers, we're one of the very few uh, roles or functions that acts the linchpin for the whole organization. Right. So really, when you have a common shared view of a customer, those organizations that do that are much more successful in, in, in their whole go to market approach. And if you look at marketing, you know, we are the, the, the sort of like the connective tissue to product, to sales, to services. You know, we need to have that dialogue with each of those functions in order for us to really deliver utopia. I, I, I like the, the the use of the, I mean, you use the word fasting in a, in a literal sense, but I'm sort of going to extrapolate that into a sort of a metaphorical sense, potentially within within business. And I almost sort of am understanding it in terms of that you actually just need to filter out all that noise and get to that point. So, so when we talk around within a business context and specifically marketing, actually, what are you what are you talking about in terms of filtering out when you want to go and reach that sort of contemplative meditative state? What what are those um, you know with data or what what's what are you filtering out? 
So um, in my intro, I, I mentioned that I'd been in marketing for, mm. for over 25 years and you do see a lot of changes. And when I first started off in marketing, it was very much perceived as the colouring in department. Mm. And I'm really glad to say that I haven't heard that expression, you know, for the last sort of like five to eight years. Um, you know, we've really evolved as a function. We've become way more strategic in terms of, um, you know, delivering a blend between understanding the role that the brand plays and understanding the purpose of the brand, because now everyone is, is, is you know, pivoting around the word purpose, um, but also making sure that you deliver against what I'd call the short term, the immediate tactical, um, you know, sort of like uh, initiatives that, that sales would want mm. to see. So, you know, from my perspective, it is about, um, you know, when I join an organization, everyone's a marketeer, everyone has an opinion, which is great. Uh, it's fantastic. But but literally everyone thinks that they could do what you do. Um, so it's all this noise that you have to almost learn to be able to navigate, but also block out. You know, one thing that I learned when um, I was very young, when it came to meditation, was how to sit and not take anything in. Right now, we're taught to be present always. Mm -hmm. And actually, that's quite disturbing because actually, if you're present always, um, there's too much noise and you're not taking in what's not being said. Mm -hmm. So I do a lot of mentoring. And when I do my refugee mentoring, one of the things that I learned um, from the refugee mentoring um, was to listen deeply, mm -hmm. but to listen to also what's not being said. And I'd apply that to the world of marketing. Sometimes there can be too much noise in a room. Everyone's got an opinion. Everyone wants to tell you what they should be doing. And I'm very self-centric in my approach. So the one voice that I do have a healthy respect for and that I will listen to, but I will also make sure I understand the fact that I'm the marketeer, you know. So I'll listen to everything that, that they have to say um, and that they, they would want. Um, but you also have to know when to not listen and when to block it out. Because actually when you also understand when not to listen and when you have those moments of pure quietness, actually it is quite cathartic because then you do get clarity. And I, you know, and I say that from experience, you know, I can be in a meeting and, you know, in meetings, you know, it, it, it's a bit like watching a play unfold. You get the same characters in every company um, and you'll get the individuals that want to be able to fill noise or, you know, because they just feel they have to say something. Um, but actually, when you dissect what they're saying, there's not that the meat isn't that it's not there. So, you know, but you have to also, you know, get to a point whereby you know what not to listen to. But also when someone's not saying something, that's. That's the space and that's where you do need to show up and that's where you do need to sort of like really understand what's not being said because that's probably the most important thing. Mm. It's quite interesting there uh, how uh, mindfulness and sales-centric were used in the same sentence because uh, normally they don't go together. Um, I mean, there was a very, very important qualification is when not to listen to Yes, well, I, I, <laughs> I, I heard that as well. I heard that as well. Um, so obviously, you know, we, we've probably got a few marketers listening to this that think, Great, but obviously you've been kind of using these practices since you were very young. Have you got any practical advice that marketers could take when they're in these certain situations or in these rooms if they haven't been used to taking this type of approach previously? Is it just a case of, you know, really making sure that you are properly filtering or, you know, have you got any practical ideas or advice you could give? Yeah. So from my perspective, you know, as marketers, we represent, you know, the target persona, right, or the buying centre that we're, that we're always, um, you know, trying to sort of like um, 
get mindshare um, of. And when you're in these meetings, when you're in these rooms, or when you're in any brainstorming scenario, you have to bring the target persona into the room and you have to be conscious of what are they hearing and from which different voices from within the company are they hearing that? Are we being consistent? Are we driving those, um, you know, sort of like experiences whereby no matter what is being said by the company or the brand, um, you know, it is a consistent voice. So when you're having to think of emulating a, a persona and you bring that into the room, it makes you very selfish about what you listen to, but it also makes you very selfish about asking the right questions because you then start asking the questions from a persona perspective. So why does it matter to that persona? What do they get from it? You know, what is the, you know, we used to talk about um, the USP, um, but again, because of the, the sort of like the way that everything is these days, there's just so much digital distraction that you have to really think beyond that. So, you know, it is about just making sure that you listen from a persona's perspective and then you know what questions to ask. And presum- presumably, you know, when you think about that, you're also thinking about um, personality traits uh, and the different types of personality traits that are in and around a room. Um, have you got any experience in managing your comms or your listening style to different individuals? What, something that resonates with me is I recently read a book called Surrounded by Idiots by Thomas Erickson. Uh, I don't know if you've, if you've read that. Uh, it's a very, very interesting book around uh, personality types um, and obviously very similar to the psychometric uh, test that you know we all know in terms of PRISM or Myers-Briggs. Um, but I think it's quite fascinating thinking about how you tailor your communications to different individuals. And have you got experience with that? Like, are sales always red, for example, or not, as the case may be? You know, so I worked uh, recently in a, in a company where sales weren't red. Actually, they were blue, which was really fascinating. And it doesn't mean that they were less effective. Actually, they were more um, in. It, they were actually more in touch with the emotive approach. Um, and having purpose to every dialogue and every conversation. So actually, it's, it was quite refreshing um, to see that. Um, but but in, in any environment, it doesn't have to be a meeting, it could also be when you're off-site with your own marketing colleagues. Uh, you know, there'll they'll be a lot of individuals that have a lot of opinions. And really, you get to the point, and experience gets you to this point, whereby... Um, you can show you're listening, but not taking it in. And there's two different things there. Because when you take it in, you're having to sort of like put effort around digesting what's being said. And sometimes individuals just want to be heard. They just want to say what they need to say, but they'll run out of steam, you know? So sometimes you just have to let them naturally run out of steam. Um, And sometimes you need that, um, you know, in a room to to actually get the, the, the heart of the conversation going. Sometimes you need that preamble, um, and you need that sort of like what I call the intro noise just to get to the point whereby everyone's comfortable about saying what they need to say. But also, it's also important to understand where you invite a dialogue where, you know, you look to individuals that are thinking deeply. Um, you know, and there was this thing, you know, recently, and it's been covered a lot whereby, you know, do you need to always speak up in meetings you know, or can you just be someone that just silently takes everything in? Those individuals are really interesting because they're they're analysing um, what's being said and they're 
you know, coming up with a different perspective. And those are the individuals that you need to go to either in the meeting or after the meeting just to say, look, what was your take on it? Is there anything that we're missing? When you go to someone asking for their advice, nine out of 10 times people want to help. It's human nature, mm-hmm. right? People love being asked for their opinion, um, you know, but it's all, it, but it's getting to the point of knowing what are you asking for, right? So the art is in the question, not necessarily in just hearing all that noise. I mean, it, it sort of strikes me that it must take you know, a substantial amount of discipline and I suppose confidence almost to actually execute on being mindful within the meetings, not just in terms of your own self-discipline of filtering out noise, remaining composed, but also to sort of almost hold your nerve to let people say the full course or not to sort of like try and get somebody to speak. But I think the overriding thing which is sort of coming out for me there is around how mindfulness is a route to empathy. And that's empathy in terms of understanding your your colleagues, their different styles, how you're going to get the best out of them. But also we're marketers. And so therefore, by extension, it's around how you can use mindfulness to create empathy and understanding of your, your target audience. And, and something that I'm uh, and I don't have the sort of the, the labels almost to go against against this, but maybe it is mindfulness. But something that I always look to exercise are thought experiments when it comes to thinking about um, a particular persona or audience type. And I'm always amazed about how far you can get if actually you do, you know, metaphorically or literally close your eyes and then run through that persona and you go through a conceptualization exercise. And actually, it's quite similar to what I used to do when I was was acting, when you sort of try to develop a character, not full sort of method acting or anything quite like that. But do you use it in in that way where you almost conduct your own thought experiments to to get to a point of empathy and understanding? Yeah, actually, I like the analogy that you had there, you know, thinking through a situation and thinking through a scenario, um, because I think when you do that, um, there'll be things that you hadn't thought of or there'll be things that come up in that um in that whole, um, you know, experience whereby um, you suddenly think, actually, you know what, there's something else that I haven't, haven't looked at. But, you know, one thing that I'd say is, is this. We're so consumed by trying to create the perfect scenario mm-hmm. that has the perfect single digital track that we want to take personas down. But actually, you know, sometimes we have to be conscious of what else is is around. So it's not it's no longer a single digital track. There's so much digital traffic around. So how do we really stand out in a, in a in a space whereby they're hearing the same thing time and time again? And one yeah. thing that I do that is very akin to what you've just spoken about is um, I will often, when I'm leading teams, walk into a room and put around the room um, all the words that we use to describe what we do, but also our competitors, but I take the logos out. Nine out of 10 times, and actually sometimes 10 out of 10 times, Mm -hmm. you know, um, the marketeers in in the room will think that um, all the words around the room, you know, are from the company that we, you know, sort of like uh, work with. Um, And they'll realize that actually we all use the same words, we all sound the same, Mm You know, there's no differentiation. We're having to put the effort in to figure out what is different about all these individual, you know, sort of like um, words that companies are using. This is the closest we're going to get to our target audience. This is what they're seeing. They're seeing the same things being regurgitated or being rephrased or just being used in a different way. So if we as marketeers can't make that distinction 
you know, we've got no hope. So I do go through that. And it's something that I do do with teams whereby, you know, make, you know, walk through how we sound, walk through what we look like, walk mm. through what products we currently have in market. Um, and when you re and you take away the branding or the logos, whatever, um, and you realize that actually we're very similar to everything else, that's the closest you're going to get to understanding how relevant are we to to the target audience that we're trying to connect with. Yeah, no, absolutely. And also, I think it's, and this is almost the nirvana in terms of what we're trying to do as marketers, but going through that sort of thought experiment exercise, it gets you beyond just thinking about your target audience from a job role perspective or a sector perspective and you you start to see those nuances of humanity and them as a person and it's it's something where there is a little bit of a sort of a, a we are a little bit laggard within in b2b but certainly sort of that direction of travel is to get more human-centric marketing to understand how to sort of emotionally engage and you know, listening to you talk, I, I'm very much seeing that mindfulness is a device which can help sort of get you closer to thinking about your customer beyond the sort of very, very rigid firmographics, if you like. It is. You have to remember that actually behind each persona is an individual. Mm. Um, and I think that's really important um, to just constantly be be conscious of the fact that, yes, okay, of course, we, we, we segment and we target and we position based on a, a profile, you know, and, you know, we know that it's not one target persona that we have to always try and go after, that it is typically a, um, a collection of personas which potentially becomes a buying centre um, that you're having to sort of like be relevant, you know, to. But one thing that I'd say, and this is where neuromarketing suddenly comes into play mm -hmm. because it is about, you know, sort of like understanding a little bit more about what is resonating. How do you make that emotional connection? And if you think about neuromarketing, again, it's been around for years, but behavioral economics, you know, I was looking at behavioral economics five years ago, you know, where we were looking at um, really understanding. And there's tools out there. I mean, if you look at the MarTech stack, Today, it's probably, what, around more than 8,000 marketing solutions. And probably when I started years and years ago, you were probably looking at um, probably about 50 or 100. You know, so that's a huge implosion of, of, of solutions out there. But when I was looking at behavioral e economics, there are so many solutions out there that helps you understand, um, you know, what your target audience, uh, you know, is looking at. So, for example, you know, eye tracking software, you know, yeah. looking at what people are looking at when it's on a screen, yeah. you know, understanding where you should actually put the call to action, understanding yeah. what fonts resonate with the brain. So Helvetica is that, a font that, that, that is has, easily... That has disappeared a bit. Like, uh, I remember five, six years ago, it was huge. Certainly when around, you know, how content was laid out on sites, etc. Um, but actually, you are right. It, it, it is used less now. Do you think that's because we have more data that isn't about behavioural economics or it's about um, it, how people are moving down the funnel. It goes back to your original point, which is that linear perfection that marketers are striving for, which is this is the route that I want our buyer to travel and they aren't looking, you know, left or right of that. Do you think that's got something to do with it? Yeah, I do. You know, we've, we've never had so much access to yeah. data, right? And typically what happens with data now, we become transactional with the insights, Right. And and that's dangerous because actually we forget about the behavioral economics, understanding what makes someone look at something, understanding, you know, simple things. I mean, you know, um, you know, you know, even the call to action, you know, where does it reside on a page? You know, if, if you know, if we look at um, 
someone looking at a screen, everything with the pandemic, everyone was online, everyone was looking at and consuming content or information through a screen. Actually, people read in a Z shape, right? But if you look at most information, it's plastered everywhere and there's too much. Mm -hmm. So I think there has been a slight shift because people are desperate to interpret the data that they almost have what I'd call a 2D interpretation of, of, of data. And actually what they need to do is look at that data from a 4D perspective. And this is where adding that additional lens from, you know, understanding and I'll put, I'll use the label neuromarketing, that element to it. When you apply that to what you're looking at, you see something different. I'll, I'll share some, a story with you. I was working for a technology company years ago, many, many years, probably about eight years ago. And, and most marketers will understand this. You suddenly get given a headcount and you think, wow, this is fantastic. You know, I've got a headcount. I'm going to recruit, um, you know, another sort of like resource. At that time, I wanted to recruit some, someone that wasn't a marketeer in the, into the team. It took me a lot of conversations to um, persuade my boss at the time that actually I wanted to bring in a data scientist because we were sitting on too much data. And every time I showed the data to marketeers, including myself, we'd immediately think of a campaign, right? So like, you know, we immediately go into safe zone, which is let's create a campaign, let's make it a little bit responsive, you know, a bit predictive, you know, based on predictive analytics, et cetera. So I brought in a data scientist. I wasn't sure what I was going to get from this data scientist, but I spoke to a couple of individuals and this individual that I brought in, they had a really interesting lens on understanding what they were looking at when they saw a, a huge amount of data. So we put them in front of um, the data that we would see as a marketeer, which was uh, transactional based, you know, looking at, you know, who had reacted to what emails had been sent out, you know, what um, offers they were taking on board, et cetera, and everything. And um, we got them to, to look at this. We gave them, you know, a couple of weeks to sort of like really, you know, decipher and come back with something that would enable us as marketers to go into the zone that we're more comfortable in, which is let's create something that is akin to a campaign that will enable us to have a strategy whereby we can take these individuals on the next you know, engagement journey. As a result of what came out of um, the, the data scientist and what they had presented back to us as a team, we created an initiative that ended up delivering 40 million in booked revenue without a sales touch. Right, that's quite phenomenal, mm. and that's one of the you know big um, um, sort of like successes, but also one of the big learnings for me, because I was out of my comfort zone. I wasn't sure. I had to try and make sure that we delivered something. wasn't expecting to deliver this, um, and it was based around um, and the, the data and the insights were were from. Uh, the channel from a, a partner community. Mm -hmm. So what we ended up doing was looking at, um, you know, when a partner first came on board, you know, typically you would have your your welcome emails, et cetera. But actually partners, when they first come on board, they want to know where they can make their margin. So start acting like sales in, in the communication. Um, so we completely changed our language and we started to focus on where, um, what initiatives and what products and what services and what solutions were giving the biggest margin um, to partners. And as a result of that, we were able to really drive some aggressive behavior from the channel. Mm -hmm. And that's why we ended up doing it without a, a sales touch. I mean, that's a fantastic anecdote. And I think it's it always shows the value of, well, firstly, pausing, taking a step back, not just jumping into things, but 
getting someone from a different discipline, from a different way of thinking to look at a, a problem. Um, and there's, there's that there's that anecdote, which I mean, obviously it's a it's an urban myth, but um, you know, a lorry is driving along the road, crashes into a railway arch, and it gets stuck there. And they get the fire engine uh, in and they're like, okay, well, we're going to have to get heavy machinery to cut the lorry apart so we can remove it. Then they bring the engineers in who have designed the bridge and they're like, okay, well, structurally, if we put this, this and this joist here, we can dismantle the bridge. And then a child walks past and says, why don't you just let the air out of the tires? But I mean, that obviously is an overly simplified sort of example of how bringing that fresh perspective can actually reveal a transformative, startling and miraculous uh, sort of solution that is blind to the experts sometimes. And in your particular marketing are the experts and that data scientist is bringing that obviously qualification, but uh, that that necessary almost naivety of how sometimes uh, marketing works. So I think it's a fantastic sort of example you've just shared there. You know, you can be too close to something. Yeah. You know, and one thing that I'll also you know add to this is diversity. Mm. So my background is different. You know, um, you know, I, I come from a very different cultural background. I was, you know, went to boarding school at a very young age. Mm-hmm. I show up in the room with all of that in the room with me, right? So gender, you know, men and women, we think differently. You know, you know, if you're different. You know, I, I think sometimes when we talk about diversity, it's not just the obvious. It's also about individuals that come from very different mm-hmm. backgrounds that think differently. And for me, I love building teams with individuals that think differently, Um, you know, because there is utopia. Because when you bring a a team together and they're all like-minded and they have very similar backgrounds, actually it can become stale very quickly. Yeah. You know, and you become safe. And I, and I am, you know, someone that just doesn't operate in safe mode, um, you know, at <laughs> all. Um, I think my family would wish I, I, I did, but I just don't. And for me, it's not that I seek danger, but for me, I seek difference. Yeah. Because actually, that's what, you know, keeps me, you know, interested in not just what I do, but also, you know, other things that I do, yeah. you know, outside of, you know, being, being a marketeer as well. So I think diversity in teams is critical mm-hmm. um, because you want to consciously build teams not based on individuals mm-hmm. that are like you. You know, you want to look for individuals that are very unlike you. This has been so good. I think even that last point, we could have a, a whole nother conversation around. For me, the thing that resonated was the idea of, you needing to be a thoughtful um, a, a thoughtful insider, so like um, a thoughtful moderator almost as a, as a marketer. Um, and I think that that is really interesting. One thing one challenge we should give to the marketers listening to this is when they're in a conversation, when they're looking at data, when they're thinking about personas that they're looking to target, to try and take two or three minutes to think slightly differently than they would maybe usually think. I think that that's um, what I've taken out of it, uh, this conversation. I don't know, Benny, your last point um, is obviously really valid as well. Yeah, I, I think that, t- to be honest, and it's, I th- it's interesting. So this is the provocative truth. And... Ordinarily, I would we start with the property truth, but then somewhere towards probably the second half, I would try and nail the, the person that we've got the dress with a sort of provocative response. Now, my anticipation was that I was going to say something along the lines of, you know, we're talking around sort of mindfulness. We're not saying anything new. It's emperor's new clothing. Why can't we just actually talk about the sort of the reality of what makes a good marketer or a good business person? And Notably, I've refrained from saying that. And then the reason why I've refrained from saying that is that, yes, 
nothing we've spoken about necessarily is new and revelatory within itself. But what mindfulness gives is a framework of understanding for how to approach it. And you need frameworks of understanding to do anything successfully. And that's why actually having had this conversation, I would be an advocate of people looking at the discipline, and I'm going to use the word discipline, of mindfulness and applying it to the way that they operate, whether that's in marketing or whether there's anything else, just because, as I said, it gives you that framework. So I think that would probably be my um, sort of reflection, but um, yeah. Completely agree. I'm glad that you didn't feel that you had to challenge it too much. <laughs> Last question. Okay, I'm sure, hopefully, Madeline sent this to you prior. It's a question we ask all of our guests when they come on the show. Um, Shalu, when was the last time you saw a piece of marketing that made you feel it in your guts? So it is this viral video, and it's called The Wait, and it was aired on TV a couple of weeks ago, and it's a video about dementia. And it's a, uh, you know, and it really got to me. I don't have anyone, you know, you know, and I, you know, I'm grateful at the moment, but uh, I'm sure that could change. But I don't have anyone connected to me that that is suffering from that. But it's, um, it was a video. It was a, two individuals at a bus stop. It's a pregnant lady, and she's sitting next to an older man, and you know, and she's obviously, you know, distracted and a bit distressed. They have a conversation. The bus pulls up, and it's her father. And, she, and he can't remember that he's a father and she's carrying a child. So it was just something that I just, you know, felt it just got to me. And I just kept thinking about it. And that's the thing. Um, when you when something stays with you for a couple of days, you know that it it, it was a brilliant, you know, video. And if you haven't seen it, definitely would, would try and, you know, Google it. it. You know, it's called The Wait. But they just delivered that message just beautifully. It was very emotive. And it just, you know, when you get that sort of like lump in your throat, yeah. you know, it was one of those moments. I mean, it's a hugely sort of emotive subject, just full stop. But I mean, it's, you know, that the that sort of relatable human experience, which I think they've obviously managed to tell there, does sound ex- extremely poignant. Yeah. And it wasn't just so blatantly done. Mm. It was a lovely little storyline, mm. you know, and you could see the pain in both of them actually and that's what you know made it um just so relevant so so for me it was that because i just think that there was you know it was a bit close to a tearjerker i think i have seen it is it an advert or yeah, is it yeah it is. it's a series because i think that there's multiple different ones there are, right yes yeah i have seen yeah. it yeah no yeah. I, I actually it did it did stick with me actually a little bit as well yeah it was you know when you're left when you're left in the room after you see something like that and you just deliberate mm. and you feel sad, you know, and I just thought, oh gosh, this is very sad. Um, you know, and, and that's, and that was probably the, the last time that something really got to me. Excellent. Well, I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I think everyone feels quite sort of somber. I think we've, yeah. we've just relived, relived, relived that. <laughs> yeah, but, I know. Uh, um, I, I mean, as I had hoped, it has been that refreshing change of pace. It's been a thoroughly sort of enjoyable conversation. Uh, I think I feel very intellectually stimulated, but I also think that then you know, a lot of your your questions sort of drove to this. There are some real practical takeaways that people can take on board. So thank you very much for, for coming on the, the podcast. Oh, it's been cathartic. Uh, really appreciate <laughs> it. And it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. B2B Marketing the Provocative Truth is brought to you by Allen Agency. To find out more, head to allen-agency.com. You can stream B2B Marketing the Provocative Truth on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else great podcasts are found. And don't forget to click subscribe to ensure you don't miss out on any future episodes. 
On behalf of the team here at Allen, thanks for listening. 